Let's look to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, now what we want to do is to build a bridge from the first century A.D. in which the Apostle John lived and wrote to 2017, Living and Beyond, asking that the text not only connect us to our Lord Jesus Christ, but in turn also connect us to this world and the way in which we're to live in it. We face challenges, we face difficulties. There are the issues of relationships. There's the relationships of health in the context of family life. There are the emotions of the highs and the lows of everyday living. But when we get to the core matter, there's this matter of you, the Holy One, and we, the sinful ones. And how this was bridged at the cross of Jesus Christ when the sinless one came to die for the sinful ones. And true salvation, authentic salvation, is found when we place our faith exclusively in Jesus Christ alone, which is our prayer that each one in all these services has experienced. We're gathered to be scattered. So we gather on the Lord's day and we replenish ourselves. We fill ourselves up to empty ourselves during the week in relationships to others taking the truth which is timeless, communicating it in our relationships in timely ways, taking into account what's the constant, your word, who you are, connecting it to the variables of what's happening in the world, aware not only what's going on globally, but getting involved in conversations and talking with one another personally always bridging truth into hearts and lives. We do that as parents. We do that as single people who grapple with relationships with others. Whether it be social gatherings, Father, large or small, opportunities await us with these verses we're examining today. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds, shape these wills, and in the comings and goings of this late August time period, we focus our attention and our eyes now upon Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to be a recurring occurrence on Wednesday nights, doesn't take long when the new ministries within the year get going. Repeated episodes, only different participants, but one stands out. Two children doing a power walk down the hallways, making their way around the corner and crash into one another, dazed, lying there on the floor, it was this wise mother that was leaning over her child when I came walking by between appointments in the evening hour. 
And she said something that matched directly to what we're examining in these verses. Watch where you walk. In these verses that we're examining today, John brilliantly uses a metaphor for what it means to make your way through life in relationship to God and the truth of God. He uses the phrase, walking in the truth. But what's fascinating is that later on in this section, he issues a challenge, watch yourselves, the two W's of this passage. The walk and the watch. Watch where you're walking, she says to her child. And in essence, that's what this man nearing the age of 90 would say to the believers at this point as he builds upon his arguments pertaining to truth in these verses. And now gets incredibly practical in the way in which you work this out in your everyday life experiences. You doing that? So I want to build now on two significant what I'll call truth phrases, both starting with the word with the, uh, the letter W, and helping us to build a bridge in the 2017 living. And in verses 4 through 6, I want you to note, first of all, the context here of walking in the truth. So we begin in verse 4 and explore it together. This elderly man, having still high impact upon generations of people, says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Notice how he begins here, I rejoiced greatly. This man has the capacity still in his latter years of being able to express his joy to other people because of what he is seeing and what God is doing in their lives. Are you doing that? You're not merely keeping it in, but you are expressing your joy to others as to what you see God doing in their lives and through their lives. But what interests me is that this man understands the essence of joy as it relates to truth. Do you? And I pondered the significance of that. Because in that brilliant book, Orthodoxy, by G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton contrasts the atheist with the follower of Jesus and notes the differences. He tells us that for the atheist, get this, sorrow is central and joy is peripheral. While for the follower of Jesus... Joy is central and sorrow is peripheral. Now I paused at that point and I asked myself, well, why? And he says that for the atheists, the foundational questions remain unanswered while they have answers for the peripheral questions. Hence, for them, Sorrow is central and joy is peripheral. But, but for the Christian, 
In the highs and lows of life and the difficult challenges we face, it's reversed. The foundational questions have been answered at the cross of Christ. And only the peripheral ones remain in doubt, such as, what will that medical report reveal this week? You see the difference? So you're dealing now with the tensions of joy and sorrow in a fallen world. But for one, sorrow is central and joy is peripheral. But for the other, joy is central and sorrow is peripheral. Where do you find yourself at? Now, this is the last man standing. The other apostles have gone home to be with Jesus. This is a very strong man. He can recount the years of standing out in the streets and communicating grace to people in Jerusalem regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, shoulder to shoulder with Peter. He'd been dubbed one of the sons of thunder. He had been temperamental and a high-powered one of that. But the years have gone by, and his strength is still there. But his tenderness matches his strength. He's both tough and tender. Good qualities to have in a man. And he says, I rejoiced, not minimally, about my circumstances. I rejoice greatly. He's involved with people, you see. Are you? I rejoice greatly, but now here is what captures my attention next. To find some of your children walking in the truth. I would have loved to hear, see it read, I rejoice greatly to find all of your children walking in the truth. He's a realist. And the real Christian is a realist when it comes to the matters of this world. Now, whether you're talking about biological children or the spiritual children and grandchildren, where you've led people to saving faith, who've led people to saving faith, and so on, and where you could find your joy rising and falling, the ebbs and flows of life, Here's a depth in his own soul and the way in which he relates. Can you? He doesn't say, I rejoice minimally that I found some of your children walking in the truth. No, he's appreciative of grace. God owes us nothing. And that there is grace operative, seizes his heart as it should ours. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children. And then I notice the next phrase, walking in the truth. He loves that word walking. It appears throughout the Bible, and it's a metaphor for the way in which you and I, we relate to God. For example, what you will find in the Genesis account is that the idea of walking serves as bookends with regard to the fallenness of humanity and its, and its results and its impact upon life. Case in point. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God. 
and he was not, for God took him. But then we're finding that in the very next section, chapter 6, that politics have gone awry. The moral and the political have severed themselves from one another. But then he bookends it because in chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, your life is meant to be used as one of the tremendous bookends by which people get a sense of where truth is to be found. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. I love the scene that Brianna was able to put on the screen for us. It serves as almost a visual metaphor for what walking in the truth is all about. Notice this pathway that's lead us, leading us in a certain direction. But notice that this pathway, it is narrow, it's not wide. And furthermore, there are railings, not on one side, but on both sides. There are parameters. I mean, everybody's walking. But the challenge is, is that there are so many that are walking aimlessly through life. So now, the question is, in what or in whom am I walking? It doesn't say walking around this world. It talks about walking in the truth. It's a favorite expression of the Apostle John. Why he introduced his entire gospel account, you might remember, we even alluded to it last week. We're in the first chapter, in the 14th verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and what? You know it. Truth. Jesus is attached to truth. Truth is attached to Jesus. He would be the one who would be addressing that issue with Herod, as we also noted last time. When Herod cynically, right before Christ going to the cross, Ask, what is truth? Truth which can't be tested is truth which can't be trusted. William Jennings Bryan, Secretary of State in Woodrow Wilson's cabinet, was interviewing a man who was seeking a diplomatic post in China. And Bryan warned the applicant that it was necessary to qualify as a linguist. So Bryan asked him, can you speak the Chinese language, he asked. And the man was up to the task. And looking Brian squarely in the eye, he replied, Try me. Ask me something in Chinese. Truth which can't be tested. Truth which can't be trusted. There are many truth claims in this world. What Jesus Christ has done for you and me is, in essence, saying, test me. Examine the evidence of the empty tomb. Ponder the significance of what I said among believers in the upper room. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
ponder what I was involved with in the give and take of that secular unbeliever, Pilate, what is true? And now the religionists and the secularists, who both find common ground in unbelief, might have to examine and re-examine their presuppositions with regard to this one, Jesus Christ, whom John utilizes in John chapter 1, verse 14, coming in grace and truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John, furthermore, in the given the take of Herod in chapter 18, rather, Pilate, what is truth? Now I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And so we examine the truth claims of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? And made absolutely certain that you put your faith and trust in, in him and in him alone. Now, he doesn't end there, does he? He goes on to say, with regard to this whole matter of walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So you and I are called now to walk in the truth, just as we've been commanded by the Father. Uh, I saw this bumper sticker. I named my dog Five Miles, so I can tell people I walk five miles every day. Well, the walk's got to match the truth. And so walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father, you see. But then you get to verse 5. Are you there? So he's got a request. He's got, he's got an ask to make of you. And now I ask you, dear lady... As we noted last week, this could pertain to a woman more likely pertain to the local church in that area to which he writes. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. Now, notice how he takes the new commandment, which Jesus had issued in that upper room. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another in as we've been saying repeatedly, the Apostle John just can't seem to escape that upper room, can he? That had a profound effect upon his life. But he ties it together with the one from the beginning, and there you have it. Because back in Leviticus chapter 19, and in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's one of the great, great biblical ethics sections of the scripture. Theological ethics. Leviticus 18, 19, and so on. But the idea here now is there's something old, there's something new, but the one here shouldn't surprise you that we, that we love one another. And now you begin to see how the railing is on both sides of this path. It's the commandments that God has given you, that you love one another. One of my professors in both my master's and doctoral degrees, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, has written a small volume called Love in Hard Places. I've alluded to it. Profound. Gets the reader to begin to wrestle with. Where are the hard places in my life that require me to love? Who are the hard people in my life that I need to provide love? 
people, problems, settings, and circumstances. But then my mind goes back, you see, to T.E. McCauley, who was the father of Ed McCauley, one of the five missionaries slain by the Alca Indians in a prior generation in Ecuador. Who, one night, shortly after hearing of his son's death, prayed, Lord, let me live long enough to see those fellows saved who killed my son that I may throw my arms around them and tell them that I love them because they love my Jesus. And when I go back to that biography and I reflect upon that matter, I can see how the words of this apostle have so impacted countless lives, can't you? Now I ask you, dear lady, and he's so wise because he combines the old and the new. The timeless with the timely. Not as though I were writing you a, a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning as if Jesus was drawing upon Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, with his statement that you love one another. And here you have it again. But you don't end there, do you? Because he continues marching forward. Walkers have a way of doing this. And now in verse 6, we're told, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, you see. Just as you've heard from the beginning. So what he wants to do now with you, he doesn't want to create a disconnect between your older and newer testaments. That's, by the way, why I don't refer to it as the Old Testament, but the Older Testament, and why I don't call it the New Testament, but the Newer Testament, because I want you to see the continuity more than the discontinuity. Jesus is building the bridge here, you see, between the two of them. John is building the bridge between the older and the newer. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you, you see, should walk in it. And I thought about that. Because one of the books of a decade or so back that has been cherished by a lot of believers was written by Peter and Barbara Jenkins, Walk Across America. You're aware of it? In the second volume, it's an amazing story True Life Odyssey, Peter Jenkins is walking by himself with only his dog as a companion from New York State to New Orleans. And there he meets his future wife, Barbara, and they took up the trek from New Orleans, heading northwest across Texas, New Mexico, Utah, Idaho, across Oregon, into the, toward the Pacific Ocean. And then as they approached the end of their journey, they wrote to many of their friends that they had befriended along the way. Their friends, knowing that they were writing volumes about the journey, asking them to meet together in Florence, Oregon, and walk the last mile together, celebrating the completion of this dramatic journey. And one of those who joined them for this moment of triumph was Barbara's 83-year-old grandmother, her only living grandparent, walking with them 
Now let me pause there because I noted another bumper sticker that said my grandmother started walking when she was 60. She's 97 now. We have no idea where she is. Back to Barbara's grandma. I just threw that in there uh, to add spice. As they came over the dunes, Barbara's grandma led them singing along the way. A song called The Last Mile of the Way. If I walk in the pathway of duty, if I work till the close of the day, I shall see the great king in his beauty when I've gone the last mile of the way. God has put you and me, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, on a power walk. Watch out for the collisions. But the key thing here is to understand that not only is there a sense of direction, there is a true destination. And too often we've got meandering people in both secularist and religionist circles who value, who value the meandering of the experience but are challenged by the restrictiveness of the journey. But there is grace in the railings of life. They're on both sides of this path, you see. You are walking in the truth, not around it. And the railings are there for a purpose. They are the railings of truth. Now, once you and I have got a grasp upon this first, what I'll call a truth phrase, that begins with a W, walking in the truth, then we're ready for that second truth phrase, begins with a W as well, watch yourselves. Both phrases we're utilizing this morning are italicized. But now you pick it up in verses 7 and 8, and here you begin with this statement as to the realities of this world. Watch what appears on the screen. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, notice the phrase, have gone out into. It doesn't merely read that there are deceivers in the world. No, what we are being told here is that there are deceivers who have gone out into the world. So now the question is, from where? He seems to have answered that, that it's the local church. Because back in 1 John chapter 2, and in verse 19, he had written, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So now we've got to take into account the complexities of life in this world. There are a lot of people that were inoculated with uh, just enough of Christianity to be able to talk it and to make it look as though they even walk it. But to shift metaphors, as we've sometimes said, we've posed ourselves the question, which is more dangerous, a clock which is five 
minutes off the hour or the clock which is five hours off the hour? And the answer, of course, is the one that's five minutes off the hour because it looks closest to the truth. Which fascinates me about the types of people that were putting Jesus on that cross, you see, because they were highly religious. But they were religious unbelievers joining forces with secular unbelievers, the Herods, the Pilots, and the others as such. You've got both Jewish and non-Jewish court systems, so you've got the religionists and the secularists functioning in tandem. So there's the complexities now of it all. And the Apostle John, who had stood at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus had turned to him and said, Behold your mother, has been processing all of this. And was able to pen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So now he ponders the significance of Jesus having gone into the world. And then ponders many deceivers have gone out into the world. In his commissioning in the upper room, Jesus has said, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Is this a counterfeit sending? That appears to be coming from the church. Because it does not read, for many deceivers are in the world. Rather, it reads, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, and you bridge that with what you have studied in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And so we've got a congregation with multiple services where if we go verse by verse and we relate timeless truth in timely ways to the times in which we live, we don't have a gullible church on our hands. We are raising up savvy, discerning people who understand the principle of the gathered on Sunday to be scattered during the week. And we are not naive when it comes to the way in which people might even talk about God as if they know God, because even in that Garden of Eden, the serpent, when he approached Eve, in essence was saying, let's have a conversation about God. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, but then he adds this, and now we've got to understand the historical context. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why does he put it this way? Give me a one-minute historical perspective. The Apostle John, approaching 90, most likely writing from Ephesus, it's about three miles from the, from the shoreline today of modern-day Turkey. Great archaeological evidence still to be found there. Now, as he writes this, he's aware of a man by the name of Serinthus. Serinthus. C-E-R-I-N-T-H-U-S. Serinthus. Who's developing a following of people who believe that Jesus received the Christ at the time of his baptism, 
And then the Christ was removed from Jesus prior to the crucifixion. Because in Greek philosophy, the spirit is good, the body is bad, and so how could God allow for one to be both divine and human and die? So he mixed Greek philosophy into biblical theology, and it sounded religious, but it's off the hour, you see. It's off the hour. Interestingly enough, still in that region today, Islam holds the idea of a substitution on that cross where someone was a substitute for Jesus rather than Jesus being a substitute for us. You see how all this fits together? Now you're bridging history into 2017 living. And even the heresies of Serenthus begin to make sense here in the way in which people try to separate body from soul. But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But what God in his sovereign purposes does at this point is that he addresses this matter head on. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now Jesus came in the flesh and is still in the flesh because three days later God raised him from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will someday return. So now you've got two natures, human and divine divinity and humanity in one person and that has got to be understood for all this to make sense because the coming of Jesus Christ was not merely coming to provide a good example or to be a wonderful teacher otherwise we've got an over-engineered product on our hands don't we no he came 100% God 100% man two natures in one person so that he could be the perfect sacrifice the perfect substitute dying in our place for our sins so now you match the coming with the phrase Jesus Christ. He did not merely say the coming of Jesus because he knew what was being taught out there. He weds together Jesus Christ and then for distinctive timely relevance said in the flesh such a one he goes on to say is two things. Number one, the deceiver and number two, the Antichrist, the Antichrist. The deceiver has to do with the horizontal relationships. He's deceiving people. The Antichrist has to do with the vertical relationship. He stands in opposition, you see, to God, his truth, his teaching. Now, we've covered this in 1 John quite a bit. Because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, we had come across a phrase that the Antichrist is coming in that last hour of history, but already many Antichrists, plural, have come. So you had both a singular and a plural, and you say, but how can I understand all of this? And here's how we've responded when we've interpreted that verse. Just as there is a line of Davidic kings, Davidic sons, who passed on the promise of the Messiah, the Christ to come, leading to the ultimate Davidic son, the ultimate son of David, Jesus. So there is a counterline, an anti-messianic line, an anti-Christ line, who are seeking then to keep the full plan of redemption from happening both first and second comings. Thus you have in your Old Testament a Pharaoh having baby Jews put to death. In the book of Esther, which we'll get to next year, a Haman 
attempting to annihilate the Jewish population. In the Newer Testament, you've got a Herod attempting to put baby boys to death, fearing that somebody would displace him on that throne. You've got to see the subtle issues behind the historical events and that there is a clash of lines that lead to that finale, what is still to come in the return of Christ. All of this needs to be understood then, not only historically, but also contemporarily. As in verse 8 now, we come to the conclusion of this thought process today, and notice it says, watch yourselves. As a mother leans over her child in the hallways around here, and says, watch where you walk. We're headed for a collision. So now you combine walking in the truth of verse 4, which we italicized, with watch yourselves in verse 8. If we are walking in the truth, then, we are not spectators of power walkers. We are active participants, not meandering, but moving forward, utilizing the commands of God that were given to us graciously as the means by which we walk in the truth. And so he says, watch yourselves. He doesn't say watch others. Take inventory. Watch yourselves. And be active, not passive, when you watch the events of this world unfolding. Ravi Zacharias understands that. Maybe you've seen the same commercial. In a commercial I saw recently, a couple of bandits are holding the tellers at a bank at gunpoint, demanding money. All the customers are ordered to the floor, and one man whispers to a security guard, do something, you're armed. And the security guard replies, I'm on duty not to do anything but to determine if a robbery is underway. And then he pauses and reassures the customer, yes, indeed, this is a robbery. For too many Christians in this world, we are in essence saying this indeed is a robbery rather than trying to prevent the holdup. Zacharias goes on to say that the naturalist is something like this, unable to respond to where truth leads. I'll say it again. The naturalist is something like that, unable to respond to where the truth leads. He is useless to a person longing for rescue in and from this world. We're not spectators. We're participants. We walk in the truth, but we watch yourselves. We watch ourselves to start with. And why we ask, and here, you know, he shifts metaphors and he uses the fertile grounds, you see, of agriculture in that region as he watches the workers coming in from the fields so that you may not lose what we have worked for. He's not talking about the loss of salvation. He's talking about the loss of the reward that comes with leading people to Christ. 
but may win a full reward. What are you saying then is that you and I have been put on watch. In one of the great stories of generations past, in one of the two rock galleries of Gibraltar, two British soldiers had mounted guard, one at each end of the tunnel, one a Christian, the other was seeking Jesus. It's midnight. And as the soldiers are going their rounds, one meditating upon the blood of Jesus Christ, which had brought him a sense of peace and assurance, the other brooding upon his doubts and fears about his future, suddenly an officer challenged the Christian soldier and demanded the password. And before he could even think, the Christian soldier responded, the precious blood of Christ. Immediately, however, he corrected himself, gave the correct password, or did he? And the officer, amazed, passed on. But the phrase, the precious blood of Christ, coming from the lips of that God, began echoing through the rock galleries, the solid walls, and made their way through the ears into the heart of the seeking soldier, as if it was a message from God timeless, timely. It's as if God was speaking to him again and again, the precious blood of Christ. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, he's saying, are those that have to be discerned. So now you pull it together. You've got your two W's. Walking in the truth, in verse 4, and watching yourself, in verse 8, but it is not one to the exclusion of the other. There's an alertness here, a discernment there, but there's forward movement here towards our destination with God forever through Jesus. Let's stand together. Well, Father, we are making our way through the epistles. Thank you for what we started in January and are still working on here in August. And what we want to do, Lord, is to not merely meander through life. We have a directionally challenged culture that we live in. People are longing for a sense of direction and trying to understand the destination. Help us to combine the W's of living, walking in the truth, watching ourselves, participants, not mere spectators, so that we can bring these timeless truths into these, into these times in which we live in a timely way. So, Father, minister now to us and through us. And may you be honored with how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.